The sermon text reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our series this morning in the book of Galatians. Last week was an introduction, and this is kind of a continuation of that introduction, and uh, it's continued by the Apostle Paul. I'll give you uh, just a little bit of background, then I'll pray, and we'll look at the text. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 10, this morning. Uh, The Apostle Paul had come to faith in a miraculous way on the road to Damascus, with a personal uh, encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was a scholar of the Jewish faith prior to that. He continued to be, but he saw everything Jewish now through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it must have been a shocking endeavor for him to change his focus about everything that he knew of the Hebrew Bible, now seeing it through the lens of the Lord Jesus He went on a journey and traveled through the region of Galatia, which I told us last week is now in what we call Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and he preached to a number of Gentile people there, and several churches were formed. He had given the gospel to people. They had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and shortly after he left, a number of people that uh, we presume came from the city of Jerusalem and came up to those Galatian churches and told them essentially that what Paul has told you is spot on. Everything that you've been taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his death and his burial and his resurrection are spot on and you need to understand those things in order to have a relationship with God. But there's a few things Paul left out. And uh, those things came from the Old Testament law, and they had a compelling argument because uh, most of them who came had sections of the Hebrew Bible memorized, and, and they could point to what we would call chapter and verse and say, look where God gave his law to his people. And it was a compelling argument that while Paul had given them a truthful message, it was an incomplete message. And word came to Paul that some of these people had drifted away from the gospel he had given them, the good news that, that alone was about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wrote this letter, the book of Galatians, to those churches. And, and I'm going to say it mildly, Paul is cranky. He's cranky with his people because they have drifted so quickly away from what he has taught them. And he's very cranky with those who came and gave them a message that said Paul's message was fine, but there's other things you need to know. And so the letter of Galatians is a letter of correction. It's a letter of truth. Uh, in, In many ways, it's not anything new because it's the message that he's already given to these churches, but now he's giving them vastly more detail and and in um, 
in a very Hebrew way, he's going to walk through the Hebrew Bible to explain to them exactly where he's coming from. And in the section we'll look at today, Paul is going to give his argument as to why his message is sufficient. And that's why I say that it is a continuation of the introduction. So with that in mind, uh, let me just pray very quickly and then we'll look at this passage together. Father in heaven, it is my desire to be truthful and clear. And my desire is not to stray from the text or have my words be heard, but to have your words be heard above all things. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would understand better at the end of our time together the authority with which Paul speaks and the absolute rock solidness of his gospel, which has become our gospel. And I pray that it would help us to ferret out truth from falsehood and that it would conform us more into the image of your son, the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Paul doesn't really give a, a defense, but he gives an argument as to why he has authority and why his message has authority in the section that we'll look at this morning. And so I asked this question to myself um, as I began my preparation this week. If you want to discredit someone and their message, how would you go about it, you know, if that was your task? And that seemed to be the task of those who had followed Paul to Galatia, to discredit his message. And, and I'm sorry because I'm going to use a really dirty word because the only thing that came to mind was politics. Um, and, 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 and so we're not going to go into politics, and I hate him on every level, and and all the rest of it, but we're coming into the political season once again. It seems like we've been there for the last hundred years and we can't get away from it, but that's reality. So if there are two opposing people that are wanting the same position, how are you going to discredit the other individual? And it seems to me that there is one of two ways. Um, the first is to attack their message. Now, let me tell you why that is not as popular as it once was. It's, it's not as popular to attack somebody's message because you need to appeal to people's minds. You need to say, let me give you the facts and the information and the background about their argument and tell you why it is faulty, and I will present you with information that will demonstrate why their message does not hold water. And people don't want to think. And so appealing to reason or logic or facts and figures really doesn't hold much water in the modern era. And, and you know what? It didn't in 48 AD. It wasn't an appealing way to argue. So the second way to discredit somebody's message is to try to discredit the individual. Now, the reason why that works is it because we appeal to emotion, and we love to appeal to emotion. How do you feel about that guy? Isn't he funny looking? 
look what he's done in the past, and so on and so forth. And so you can stir up a whole lot of emotion much more quickly than you can stir up an appeal to intellect or logic and so on and so forth. And so we can tell a little bit by Paul's argument what may have been said about him by his detractors when they came to Galatia. And I'm going to give you some suggestions. Now, most of us know who have any background at all in the Bible or have heard a few sermons here and there know that Paul was, in fact, a great student of the Hebrew Bible. And, and I conjecture, and I believe it to be true, that Paul had the entirety of what we call the Old Testament memorized uh, from start to finish. And, and he was a proponent of uh, promoting the scriptures as he knew them and understood them. And, and not only was he a great student, he excelled in his studies. He was number one top in his class and was destined for absolutely great things. And as such, when this idea of Christianity came along, where people were saying, we know who the Messiah is, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul went off his rocker, and he says, I know what the Messiah looks like, and Jesus is not him. And so as a result, he became an antagonist to the church, and he started to persecute Christians. In fact, he would travel around and try to find people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He would have them arrested, beaten, and sometimes killed. Well, if you were a detractor of Paul's, and you came to these churches, one of the things you would remind them of was Paul's past. Uh, the very way that you are following now, Paul used to be such an ardent opponent of it, he would actually kill people who called themselves Christians. The second thing that they might say was, now Paul calls himself an apostle, but one of the primary prerequisites of being an apostle is that you knew the Lord Jesus Christ following his resurrection. And one of the things that we know of Paul because of his background, the detractors might say is, well, where was he during the three-year ministry of the Lord Jesus while he was traveling around? He didn't know Jesus. He didn't hear Jesus speak. He didn't hear Jesus preach. He didn't see some of the miracles that Jesus did while he was here on earth. Everything that Paul knows, he knows secondhand. He's a Johnny come lately. And you know how secondhand information gets passed down. Oh, you can get a lot of the truth, they might say, of Paul, but, but things get missed. Things get perverted. Things get left out. Furthermore, Paul was such a student of the Hebrew Bible, and he knew how hard it was to uphold the law that he didn't want to burden you with that because it would not make his message very popular, and so he left that part out. And so Paul's detractors came to these churches and said, while the message of Jesus is good and sound, there are other things that Paul unfortunately left out. And those things include things like food laws, what you eat, and, and how you eat it, and so on and so forth. And 
and the Old Testament law of circumcision that the male children and males of your households should be circumcised in order for you to actually have a relationship with God. And you could see how their arguments could be compelling. I mean, you had to use your brain a little bit, but you're going, yeah, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, Paul, Paul, what I know about Paul was that he was all those things and he had all that background and he was constantly quoting the Old Testament to us and, and he was saying all these things and, and he wasn't mentioning the law to us much. Maybe he did leave some things out and I'm glad that you cleared that up and so we'll adopt those practices and those ideas. Well, as I mentioned, Paul is cranky. And Paul says that anybody who adds anything to his gospel is damned. And he holds no bars about it. The language in the original is, is very clear that these people should go to hell as far as Paul was concerned if you add anything to the gospel. So before we quickly look at our text, what I want us to do is very quickly look at what is the heart of Paul's gospel message. The very heart of Paul's gospel message comes to us in the first four verses of the book itself. Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle. So whether or not they said Paul doesn't have the right to call himself an apostle, he called himself an apostle. A messenger who preached God's message after him. He continues by saying, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now this is one of the reasons why we know that they're talking about Paul as being a Johnny-come-lately and having gotten his information secondhand. Paul is very quick at the very outset of his letter to say, the information that I gave to you did not come from man. I didn't get it from other people. I didn't get it over here. I didn't get it over there. The information that I gave to you came directly through the Lord Jesus Christ and from God the Father himself. Now, now that does to us not seem like that big a deal. <laughs> but if I were writing a letter and I was telling you the information that I'm communicating to you is in no way, shape, or form secondhand, that everything that I am saying to you I got firsthand from the source the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is undiluted, unpolluted, and I have given it to you in its entirety. That's how Paul begins. But then he continues in verse 1 and says, the first point of my gospel is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to talk more about this, and he's going to flesh it out, that Jesus the Christ, I'll come back to that word in just a moment, has been raised again from the dead. So at the very outset of the communication of Paul's message, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But he identifies Jesus as king, 
which is the word Christ or Messiah. It encompasses a whole lot of other things as well. But Jesus, who is king and is Christ, who is Messiah, is the one who has been raised from the dead. These are the first two components to Paul's gospel. Then down in verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that this verse is so important is that the message of the gospel in its essence is describing how the broken relationship between God and man has been restored. All right? Paul is going on to explain how the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus restored a relationship between God and man. And consequently here, he identifies God as Father. In other words, the message that I have given to you, the gospel about the risen Lord Jesus, has reestablished a relationship with God so that you can call him Father. And then he continues in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age according to the will of God, God the Father. In other words, the means by which this relationship was reestablished was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for the problem of sin which separated you from God. Okay, so just to summarize, Paul's gospel, gospel message is this. Jesus Christ is king. He is Lord over all. He died for your sins, which separated you from God. He rose again on the third day, and consequently you have relationship with God the Father reestablished because of what Jesus has done for you. That's Paul's gospel message. And he's going to spend the rest of the book after this section explaining the realities of this, predominantly from what we call the Old Testament. And we'll go through that and demonstrate that. And that's the sum total of Paul's gospel message. That's the heart of it. That's everything. No circumcision, no works of the law, no food. Nothing else is going to accomplish relationship with God being restored except the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the King. Okay? So now Paul starts to... Uh, give his, not defense, so to speak, but the plain, hard, cold facts about who he is as this messenger in refutation to what these people have said about him. So look with me very quickly at verse 11 of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now that's, that's a very important fact. And, and it's, a, it's a fact that I hope every preacher could say with clarity, with truth, and with dignity. That the gospel I give to you is not man's gospel. I didn't get it secondhand. I didn't get it by hearsay. I didn't make it up. It is not a fabrication of my own mind. 
Somehow, some way, the gospel I am going to present to you came directly from God. And that's why the authority of Scripture is so absolutely critical. But Paul is going to go beyond that. But he begins by saying, The gospel that I preach to you did not come from man, verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul declares and claims that everything that he has taught to these churches in Galatia did not come from any other source than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now that is an absolutely bold claim. And, and as he describes his argument, so to speak, we are going to see the authority that is behind the qualifications of the Apostle Paul. But he says, I got it and I received it directly through a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. For ye Now, okay, so there's, there's claim number one. I got my message right from Jesus Christ. Now, now, we'll understand where, when, and how that took place. It took place, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 9, Paul's road to Damascus encounter with the Lord Jesus. But, but what he was going to do now is address the whole Paul's past issue, you know. Now, remember, Paul was was a persecutor of those of you who held to the belief that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul is going to own that, and Paul is going to address it, and he's going to take it head on, and he's actually going to use it as one of his great defenses. Look with me at verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he, that is Jesus, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now here's the argument. What would turn somebody 180 degrees in their opinion? Not only turn them in their opinion, but turn them in their lifestyle and in their behavior and in their occupation and everything that they did and everything that they stood for. Seemingly in one day. What would, what would change somebody that radically? In other words, what would, what would it take to take someone who was an ardent opponent of the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that he would kill their followers, and turn them into not only a proponent, but a champion for the same cause to the point where it would put his life in jeopardy. The only thing Paul says that changed me was a direct and personal encounter with that particular individual. And that's what happened with the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. He said, I met Jesus on that road, and I was struck blind, and he spoke to me face to face, in person, and gave me the message 
that I was to proclaim to the Gentile world. That is why I went from being an enemy of the gospel to its strong proponent. So he uses the argument really against him and says, if you can explain it any other way as to how I became a friend, not only a friend, a champion of the gospel as opposed to an opponent of it. It was my personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I had that account, when I had that encounter, I didn't go immediately and consult with anybody. You see, that's the important part. Paul didn't say, okay, well, I got to check this out. I got to find out if what I've heard and this person is real. I've got to run down to Jerusalem and check it out with the other boys. He said, no, I spoke face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that what he has said was true. And now I understand all the scriptures that I have memorized and everything that I have studied and everything that I have put in place for the last 10, 15, 20 years of my life. I now understand it because I have met the Lord Jesus Christ. So now what he's doing, he continues in verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what Paul did, and, and one might think that he would do this, Paul made several trips during this period down to Jerusalem, and I'll explain those in just a moment. But for about 14 years of Paul's life, Paul traveled around Arabia, traveled around Damascus, and you know what he was doing? Number one, he was re-educating himself from the Old Testament, but he was preaching the gospel that he had learned from the Lord Jesus on the Damascus road. He didn't just run down to Jerusalem and say, I got to talk to these other apostles to make sure that I am on the straight and narrow. Paul is categorically, radically convinced that the message that he is preaching is sound and true and came from the source itself. But he does want to address this issue. In verse 18, he says, After three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Uh, I went up th uh, after three years to visit Cephas, and I remained with him for 15 days. Now, one might think, well, this is where Paul is getting his information. Paul went to Jerusalem and, and had a bit of a holiday and, and talked about what he'd been doing for the last three years with Peter and, and spent that time with Peter and, and enjoyed Peter's company. They're going to have a bit of a spat in the text that we'll look at next week. But, uh, and it's over the same issue that we're addressing now. But he had a wonderful 15 days there. And, and he says in verse 19, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Sometime in that 15 days, I, I happened to butt into James and, I, you know, we, we shared a cup of tea and a little meal and, and all the rest of it. But in other words, I didn't go down there to get my goods straight. My, my goods were already straight and I've been preaching it for three years. And he says, to, verse 20, I am, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown 
in those churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, who, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. In other words, Paul was known by reputation as one who was once an enemy but now a hero, and everybody was rejoicing, and everybody was giving praise to God. Now, if they had a problem with Paul's gospel, they wouldn't be giving praise to God. And Paul is around preaching this in Arabia and Damascus and in Syria, Sicilia, and he's spent 15 days with Peter, and all anybody is doing is giving praise to God. And so if you're the reader of this letter and you've heard these detracting comments about Paul's character, which was supposed to disparage his message, the evidence is starting to look shaky. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you're at all a reasonable person, you would say, well, you know, when Paul was here for several weeks and he shared with us this gospel, he was very compassionate and kind and loving and and he talked about his personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus as being the direct source. We could understand in a way that he may not have given us all the goods. But then again, he's talked about a 14-year period of time where he's preached the same gospel. And nobody's ever complained about it. As a matter of fact, everybody that heard him preach gave praise to God. But then his evidence continues in chapter 2. Then, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now these names may not mean anything, but I'll tell you why they mean something in just a minute. But he goes on in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had been proclaiming among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. So Paul goes to Jerusalem after 14 years. Now, the revelation that he received was that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And Paul had collected aid in terms of money to take to the believers in Jerusalem to give them some relief from the famine. That's the revelation that's being spoken of. And so he found the guys that seemed to be influential. And those guys would have been Peter, James, and John, you know, of the Jerusalem church. And it wasn't so much that he needed to compare his gospel with theirs. In other words, I want you to put your stamp of approval on my gospel. I really believe Paul was wanting to make sure that the gospel that was being preached in Jerusalem was as sound as the gospel he had received from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? Because these detractors who had come to Galatia had come from Jerusalem. But notice what takes place here. Back to verse 3 of chapter 2. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised 
though he was a Greek. You see, the detractors had gone to Galatia and said one of the things that Paul had left out was observance to the Old Testament law in terms of food and circumcision. And they had come from Jerusalem. And Paul says, you know what's funny about that? I went to Jerusalem and I spoke to the guys who were influential in the church. And I was traveling with this great pagan Gentile Greek guy whose name was Titus. And they never even mentioned the fact that he needed to be circumcised, let alone tell him to get circumcised. And he was a believer. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. There were detractors, he goes on to say, who came into Jerusalem and said, this is not right. And he says, we did not listen to them for one second whatsoever. And then in verse 7, and I'll just read through to 10. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that is the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand to fellowship and to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked that we should remember the poor, the very thing that we were eager to do. Remembering the poor had nothing to do with salvation, and Paul had come to Jerusalem to give aid to those who were in a famine. That was just part and parcel with being a believer. He said, of course I'm willing to do that. But the entirety of the Jerusalem church said, good job, Paul. You're giving them the goods, the straight gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing else, and nothing else needs to be added to it. Well, I know that we had to use a little rationale and we had to use a little brain and a little bit of logic and, and all those other things. But if you want to look for an argument that seems pretty sound about the fact that Paul was preaching the gospel and nothing else, this seems to be solid. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again on the third day, that he is king and Lord and reestablished a relationship between God and man by the removal of sin. And nothing else, and man has nothing to do with it. That is the message of Paul. And it is the message that he will explain and unpack in the next few chapters of this letter. Why is this important? Two reasons as we conclude. Really and truly, friends, if this book is God's word, which I believe it to be, Paul says to add to that message is a message of damnation. Plain and simple. To say that man must do anything Aside from this, Paul says, is anathema, cannot be tolerated whatsoever. And that is Paul's 
message. And it is the only message that we can hold fast to and nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. We're not going on witch hunts, but Paul is making it absolutely clear what must be believed to know the full and true gospel. And anything else is nothing but a lie. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for it contains all of life. From the very beginning to the very end, it is about how relationship with you is restored through your son. And I would ask that we would be a people who see the absolute necessity of the centrality of the gospel Paul preached and nothing else, that there is no temptation to add anything to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.